Happy New Year. And so could you turn to someone around you and say good morning and happy new year to them? Could you do that for a moment? Those of you that are watching us through church at home, do the same. We are glad that you're here with us also, whether you're here in person or watching us through church at home. We want to say welcome and thank you. So grab your Bibles, your devices today. It is the book of Romans chapter 9. We started a a series through the book of Romans months ago, back in 2020, way back when, you know, and now uh, we took a week or four weeks kind of vacation from it during Advent. Now we're back in the book of Romans. You say, Mark, usually don't you preach about that of resolutions and things like that, right? Well, we all know how short they are and how seldom they last very long. So I wanted to get back into the book of Romans with you as we prepare for our two Connection Sundays, the end of the month. And then also we're getting ready for Easter and that resurrection season. So I want to talk to you about that of the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. I would ask you to pray for those that are suffering today. We have a number of people that are in the hospital today because of COVID, and we would like for you to just remember them in your prayers this week, that God would just sustain them and heal them. And uh, there are a lot of people that are suffering around us in our community, and I encourage you to always be uh, aware of that. So let me talk to you about the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. Let me start out like this. First of all, can I issue a disclaimer to you? Say, Mark, it's always we're getting nervous when you issue disclaimers before you start teaching. Romans chapter 9 is a chapter that many times when people teach through the book of Romans, they will skip over Romans chapter 9 because it is a very difficult chapter to wrap our mind around. So today when you leave, I will warn you that you're going to leave with some questions that I'm not going to be able to give you all of the answers. Say, oh man, you know, I've already texted my offering in. Can I get it back? No, sorry. You know, you can't do that, right? So I'm not going to give you all of the answers today because here's the deal. I don't have all the answers. I don't have all these answers about the sovereignty of God and that the balance of my responsibility as humanity But I can tell you what I know from what Scripture teaches us today. So I start by setting the Scripture up this way this morning. Suppose that you are a young Christian, Jewish Christian person in 57 AD. That is the year that this letter was written to the church at Rome. And so you've been reading this letter and you've had eight chapters of readings thus far. Now the letter was one complete work from that of Paul to the church at Rome. Our canon divides it up into chapters. So as this young Jewish Christian, you've read all of these, and these words have many times, as a Jewish Christian, has left you speechless. In fact, they have left you somewhat shocked because you as a Jewish person and now a Christian, a Christ follower, you were raised in what we would call Jewish lore. And what that means is this. You were raised as knowing that being the people, the nation or the ethnic group that God has chosen, that you are a covenant people with God. But now when you begin to read this letter to the church at Rome, what you realize is this, that God has opened the door, not to just those that are the chosen Jewish nation, but God has opened the door to the Greek and to the Gentile. And that has somewhat got you stumped a little bit. Because they not only have had a door open to them, but now they have equal access to God. But here is really the, I think the toughest thing for you to swallow would be this. That they are coming by the hundreds or the thousands 
Jews and Gentiles are Gentiles and Greeks. They are coming to Christ. And what's happening with God's chosen people here? The Jews, they're running from God. They're rejecting the teachings of the Messiah. And so it really brings a moment of quandary, I think, for you as a young Jewish Christian in AD 27. And so Paul writes this. I think it kind of gives you the framework why how Paul writes this. He says in Romans 9 and verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, I stop to tell you that Paul is not subject to lying to us. He's just saying this is the truth that you have to hear, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, that even though he's a very logical writer, he becomes very emotional for us today. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the, the flesh, my Jewish fellow Jewish people, he's saying, that they are Israelites, and to them belong, and he lists the, the benefits of that of being Jewish, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promise. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, here's the big one, according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. So what's happening here? They're adopted, they're children of the covenant, they have the commandments of God, Temple worship they have. They, they have the promises of the Old Testament. They have the patriarchs like Abraham and Moses and Isaac and Jacob. They have all of those. I mean, Jesus is Jewish. Come on. They have all of that. Has God tried his best and failed with the Jewish people? And I, and I, I put that in my notes today because it is a valid question. How, how much more could he do? We've all had that moment with some individual where we sought to save them. We sought to intervene in their life, you know. We sought to do something that would turn their life around. And no matter what we did for them, it still did not work with them. And I wonder sometimes, is this what Paul is simply talking about? It's this tension that we feel between the sovereignty of God and that of the responsibility of humanity. Where does it end and where does the other begin? Is it a tension to be managed in our lives? Or is it a tension for us to be alleviated by God at some point in our walk here on this earth? How much of history, how much of the present, how much of the future, how much of my life, how much of my salvation does God control? And how much do I control? That's a huge question. How much do my, my, my um, actions, how do they affect all of this when God is sovereign, but there is some human responsibility on my part. When we left Romans chapter 8 uh, and verse 30, we left, we left Romans 8 and verse 30 realizing these powerful words to us. He says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So who's failed here? Who's failed? Or is this God's plan? You know, but is there apparent failure here? And so I have to go back to something personal with you this morning. That it's our journey. It's this has been my journey for some time. This has been a journey for me as I've struggled through the understanding of the sovereignty of God and the understanding of human or my own responsibility in my relationship with God. This delicate balance between that of being saved by grace through faith, not of my works, but yet, where do my works come in all of this? You know, where do my actions come into play here? 
Because I can't just go out and do whatever I want in life, you know, and, and then say that I'm a Christ follower. So where do my where do my, you know, actions come into play in all of this? And so, man, I searched through this for years. I really did. I struggle with this. I begin to question all the doctrine that I had been taught growing up in the church that I grew up in. I began to question all the classes that I had taken in college, all the lectures and all the textbooks. And I came to this balance in my own life, this balance, this place of understanding that of the sovereignty of God and that of the responsibility of humanity. And I have to tell you this, that I still don't know all the details. You say, Mark... You're the preacher. You're supposed to have all the answers for us. No, I don't. Jesus has all the answers for us, you know? It's not me. So there's still some struggle in my life. But here's what I do know. I understand God's heart toward me. I understand God's nature, and I understand his character. And I understand this is all about grace and mercy, And but I don't have all the details. Here's one thing I do know, that it's God's faithfulness. It is God's absolute faithfulness that secures my salvation, rock solid. It is God's faithfulness that secures my salvation and not my faithfulness. And not my faithfulness. Because anything less than that, and I know you, you know, save the emails. Don't start them right now, okay? Wait till I get finished, all right, before you do that. But, but what I realize is that anything less than the understanding that it is God's faithfulness that secures my salvation and position in him and not me. Anything less than that and makes my salvation a work of the gospel of Mark. And I'm not talking about the Mark that wrote the gospel in the scriptures. I'm talking about this Mark because it would make it a work of my own. Anything less than that understanding today that this is a work of Jesus Christ in my life. So I come to this realization that he chose me. Wow, it's huge. It really is that he chose me. If you really knew me, then he chose me. And that is amazing that God is sovereign over history, that God is sovereign over the present, that God is sovereign over the future. He's sovereign over every moment in my life. And that even includes my salvation. Listen, it's not that I decided to follow Jesus, as the song says. It's that he called me. That he called me. Now, right? You feel the tension in the room. All the Presbyterians are loving this. All the Baptists are sweating over this, right? Where are you going with this, Mark? Next thing you're going to talk about election. Oh, I didn't bring that. And I'm not talking about the one we just voted in either, right? No, Paul brings this up. We're going to talk about it in a moment. I told you, it's going to get rough. Put the seatbelt on. We have them for you this morning in the seat because this challenges you and I. It's not that God looked down upon me and saw some little bit of good in my life. And he said, hey, you're better than the next guy, so I'm going to choose you. No, no. He called me when I was absolutely rotten to the core. He initiated that relationship. I responded to his call upon my life with obedience out of love. Yes. So do I have all the answers? No. What I realize is smarter people than I have been simply searching these truths out for Hundreds of thousands, maybe thousands of years, and we're still back to this discussion today. But what I do know is a scripture, obscure text, 
found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29 and verse 29. It's not in your notes. It's not on the screen. I told you it's obscure. It is, really. But here's what it says. Write it down. Read it later. Deuteronomy 29 and 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. I don't have to know everything about God. And if you're sitting here thinking that you do, then can I tell you, your brain is going to really hurt. It really is. Yes, because you're not going to be able to wrap your mind around a sovereign God. It's not going to happen. So what Paul does, he gives us a glimpse into the heart of God for you and I to help us have a greater understanding of who he is. But it comes back to this question. If God is so sovereign, if God is in such control over all things, then why the chosen Jewish nation, are they rejecting him? Why? It's a great question. Because here's the question. Can God fail us? You say, Mark, be careful. There could be a lightning strike today. And the skies are clear outside, right? Yes. Can God fail us? Because has God failed here? Did God make some valiant effort with the Jewish people and they're rejecting him? So has God failed? It just didn't work out for him. I mean, come on. The incarnate Christ is in their heritage, in their lineage. He was born into their culture. And if this happens for the Jewish people, can God fail us? Wow. That's huge. Maybe I should just leave you with that question. We pray and we leave. That would be a terrible place to leave, wouldn't it? No, I'm not going to do that. But can he fail us? I mean, can he fail us in our salvation? It's, it's a thought. Can he fail us in provision? Can he fail us in relationships? What about COVID? What about all the things that we've experienced over the, the past year in 2020? What about all the, some of you are going through this, going into this new year, 2021, and you are really wrestling with this thought that God has failed you, that God has not performed like you wanted to him to perform, that things have not gone the way that you thought they should go. Right? You prayed, you asked, and it didn't happen the way that you thought it should happen. And so you're struggling with this. Can I tell you that Paul knows you and I so well in the Spirit? Here's what he says in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. There it is, right? He says that. For not all who have descended from Israel belong to Israel. What a template to place over our lives. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, he says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are, are counted as offspring. And when I read that, what I realized is this. Historically, there has always been Jews that were Jews due to heritage. And in this time there was, and today there still is the same. So they were Jews of heritage. And then they were those that embraced that of the teachings and the God and the promises and the faith of Abraham. So there were those two groups of people. And what I realize when I, when I look at this, I think something that we've always kind of gotten maybe wrong about the Jewish people is this. That their relationship with God was never about ethnic identity. It was never about them as an ethnic people. Understand that it was always about their heart. It was always about a personal trust and unfailing God, even when it seemed that God had failed at times. And what I realize about all of this is this, that God's plan is seldom my plan. Can I get an amen on that, right? Yes. God's plan is seldom my plan. Why? 
What does that mean? Because that's sovereignty. That's exactly what that is. That God has this, and we say, I say this to you often, that God has this 30,000 foot view of your life. He sees everything, past, present, and future. He coexists in all three of those frames of time. He does. That's crazy, isn't it, to think about that? And then what I realize is this, that you and I function with a three and a half inch view of life. And so basically, we're struggling to really know what we want for lunch today, much less what's going to happen in the future within our lives. And so what I realize is this, that our relationship with God, those that are of the Jewish faith that Paul is writing to, it's always been based on this deep trust, deep trust deep in our hearts in the very shadow of his love and his mercy and his grace. Even when Nathan, Pastor Nathan, preached weeks ago last year, and he preached that passage where Paul uses the word circumcision about 30 times, right? And the more you say it, the more nervous everybody gets in the room, right? And and so he says that, but he also reminds us that this is not about surgery, but this is about simply what? A work of your heart, a work of God within your own heart. So has God failed the Jews? And the answer to that is no. But just because you were born in Israel does not make you Israel. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying to you and I. What does that mean for us? Oh, I love this part. Here's what it says. The, that it means simply that God is no respecter of person for us. That's exactly. He chooses us in the most likely situations of our lives. He does. He chooses us in those moments of our lives when probably no one else would choose us. It's not because that we're born into a Christian family. It's not because you were raised in church. It's not that at all. It's not because you have kept all of the Ten Commandments. Listen, we gave the test to you last year in the book of Romans when we were doing this series. We all failed. We all miserably failed, and we congratulated each other on the failure. Remember, right? Because we realized that what? Those are there to push us to God, and we understand that we failed that, and yet God chose us. Wow. Look at the person next to you this morning. I don't know if you came with them or not. Just turn and look at them for a moment. You don't have to say anything. Can you believe God chose them? Isn't that unbelievable? Isn't that's a miracle, isn't it? Yes, yeah, said, Mark, that's terrible. You shouldn't say that. Well, they're looking this at the, you singing the same thing. Isn't that right? That God chose us. You say, Mark, that's wonderful. I don't know why you gave us a disclaimer, because here's the part. Brace yourself about what, about what we're about to hear. What Paul is about to say to us, verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. And though they were not yet born and had done nothing, neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that's a problem, isn't it? It's like we painted God with this brush, and all of a sudden Paul comes and he erases the lines. Yeah? He says, well, let's look at God for who he is. Can I I break this down for you for a moment? Because I can't leave you just with that verse. So here's Isaac. 
Isaac represents the son who embraces the promises of God. Ishmael representing the son who rejects the promises of God. All of Abraham's descendants have always fallen into two categories. Those that embrace the promises and those that reject the promises. And then there's Isaac. And then there's Isaac. Isaac has two sons. And Jacob is... The, he's no saint. Now, come on. We've talked about him in the past. You know, he's no saint. In fact, his name means liar and deceiver and supplanter and all other kinds of wonderful words. And, and so that's Jacob. Yet he embraces the promises of God. But then there's Esau. Esau, who trades his portion for a meal. He simply trades his obedience to the promises of God for the desires of his own flesh is what he does. And God knew Jacob. And God knew Isaac in their imperfection, but God never knew Ishmael and Esau. And that's trouble for us. It really is. You say, Mark, this is why we don't talk about chapter 9. We go to chapter 10 and 11. Well, you know, they're challenging too, but here's the thing I want to say to you today. And I I want you to, to write this down or catalog this in your mind at some point that never attempt to separate God's elective will, his sovereignty. Never attempt to separate God's elective will, his sovereignty from his mercy. Because when you do that is when you get in trouble. When you do that is when you begin to redesign God in a way that you think that he looks and you begin to make God out to be this Older, white-haired, long white beard, not Santa Claus, but angry, old, grumpy, old man with a stogie hanging out of his mouth in heaven. And he's just looking for someone to really, you know, come down on. You say, Mark, I've never thought about God like that. I know, it's probably, you shouldn't, but we do. But what I realize when I read this text, that God's will is always bathed in grace God's will is always bathed in mercy. Look at Jacob. Look at Jacob. He chooses Jacob, and and Jacob's name is changed to Israel in the very shadows of his sketchy past. This is, I think this is where we get in trouble with texts like this because we're regarding God's sovereignty over all things without simply painting that with the brush of his mercy and his grace and his love. And what I realize is this, you can't divorce his will from his character and his nature. And when you begin to divorce his will from his character and his nature is when we find ourselves in trouble in these types of texts. Because God here does show us Israel's disobedience. He does. God here shows us his judgment and they merit his judgment. They do. Yes. But we always say here that what? Without, without simply, without judgment, there is no mercy within our lives. So we see that here. And then we also see God's divine mercy bathed in this whole story. So I have to say to you this morning. And I don't say this to you really often. But I have to say to you this morning. I don't have all the details about this. Man, if I could give you all the steps about it, then it would be wonderful. Absolutely. Then I've accomplished something that theologians for hundreds or maybe thousands of years have not been able to accomplish. I don't have all the details about all of this. I don't, I don't understand all the ins and outs of that specifically of God's sovereignty and man or human responsibility. 
But what I do know is this. I do know the heart of God. And I understand that of the very character and the nature of God. I realize that. And I do, when I read this text, I do realize that God chooses Jacob over Esau. And I can't get around that, right? I can't just brush that to the side. So there are two things that I do know this morning. I know maybe three or four, but there's two I want to share with you, right? The first is this. God is not arbitrary. Understand this. God is not arbitrary. Tim Keller says that God does not set up in heaven and he is not going eeny, meeny, miny, mo. you're in. In any meeny, miny, mo, you're out. That's not, that, I think we have that view of God sometimes when we talk about God's sovereignty over us, even in the area of that, of our salvation. That God is somehow up in heaven doing that and choosing us in some very arbitrary way. What I tell you is this, is this, God has a plan. What I realize is this, God has a plan. Rest assured in God's plan this morning. And his plan is always about his glory. Understand that. That's how we know God. It's about his glory. And that is always bathed in mercy. And that is always bathed in grace. So God is not arbitrary. So this is not to bring some fear into your heart this morning. And the second thing I know is this. That we are saved by grace alone. And not by our works. It's not that God looked down at me and said. I asked you a little good in him. So I'm going to choose him. Because he's a lot better than the guy next to him. And his heart is softer than him. And, or he's less private prideful in him and any of those scenarios any of those scenarios understand apart from being saved purely by grace any of those scenarios in my life make this a work of me and i become my own savior and i want to tell you i can't save anyone much less myself but i know his character and nature And I know that God is for me and not against me, that he will complete the things that he started in my life. But Mark, what about this thing? What about this thing about God's sovereignty and man's or human responsibility? And it brings me to another question. Mark, you got a lot of questions. I told you I was going to leave you with questions. I told you that. So the next question is, is God obligated to show mercy? Is God obligated to show mercy here? And and Paul knows this so well because here's what he says in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And understanding, I think, is a must here for you and I to even go any further. Because what is happening, Paul, is describing something that's the very heart of God. It's the very essence of the God that we love and we serve this morning. And it's about mercy. The very definition of mercy cannot be about obligation. Mercy is about receiving something in your life and my life that we absolutely do not deserve. And we can never deserve it. And if, if, you deserve, if you deserve it, then it's not mercy. Understand that. It's justice. It is justice. So how can we make God out to be unjust and unmerciful if none of us deserve mercy to begin with? I think that's a huge thought. It really is. Because none of us deserve mercy to begin with. Does God owe us salvation? The answer to that is no. Because we don't deserve anything when it comes to God. 
Well, God obligates himself to that. I've, been, I've heard that for years. Can I tell you, delete that theology from your brain because that is not true. God does not obligate himself to anything because God is free to do anything he absolutely wants to do in this life because he's God. And anything less than that, when you look at God, chips away at his sovereignty over our lives in this world. So this gives us a look at the very heart of God. It's the way God chooses you and I as sinners. It's not through justice, but he simply chooses us through mercy. Anything from God then, including my salvation, that anything from God then becomes an act of mercy and becomes a gift from him. Oh, and when I when I wrote that in my journal this week, it was so freeing to realize that this is not about me and this is not about me being good enough. This is not about me working my way to heaven. This is not about me working my way to please God. Yes, there is place for obedience and all this. I'm not negating that whatsoever. But what I realize is this, that it is his faithfulness. It is his faithfulness that secures my salvation in him and not mine because anything short of that will be a work of Mark. And that is not the case. So, Mark, what about this thing about God's sovereignty and human responsibility? Paul says, let me explain that to you in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And I think we struggle with those words. We really do. Listen, we, we struggle because Paul uses Pharaoh to show you and I a great example. I think one of the most greatest examples in all the Bible of that of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But understand, frame this right now. If you want to read this, it's back in the book of Exodus, chapter 4 through 14. But I think what we realize is this, and what we must understand, is that when God came to Pharaoh through Moses with the plagues, Pharaoh was not a nice guy. Realize that, okay? That Pharaoh wasn't a benevolent monarch. He wasn't a guy that took care of his kingdom very well. In fact, he was a ruthless, murdering tyrant is what he was. In fact, he has enslaved an entire nation. His purpose is to work them to death. And then when there's a new generation of the Jewish people, he will work them to death generation after generation for, well, 400 years that they were in captivity. So he is not a nice person. Understand that. And so when God comes to him, it's not like he has everything together in life and all of a sudden God hardens his heart. No, it's God's rejection of Pharaoh is consistent with Pharaoh's rejection of God. You got to look at this the right way. It's his choice. God gave Pharaoh over to his own stubbornness. Pharaoh decides to resist God. God reinforces his choice is what happens. God gave Pharaoh, he, he gave Pharaoh a choice. Um, that's his responsibility. God worked through Pharaoh's choice for God's glory to establish his glory in the earth. That is sovereignty. Sovereignty. And so I see that and I think this is absolutely an amazing point for you and I to understand. God gave Pharaoh what he chose. And then God uses Pharaoh's choice for his glory to be made known in the earth because God is sovereign. 
Pharaoh's to blame for his heart, not God. Man, it's really easy to throw God on the bus, isn't it? Yeah. It, it really is until we think about these things and really look at them in the context of these narratives and realize Pharaoh's to blame for his heart, not God. So it brings me to this last thought in Romans 9 and verse 20. So there has to be an ultimate purpose about God in this world. There has to be an ultimate purpose for God in this world and what God does in this life. And it's Romans chapter 9 and verse 20. And I say this to you as my last reading this morning from the book of Romans. For Paul says, but who are you, O man? He says, but who are you? To answer back to God? Will what is molded say to his molder, why have you made me like this? And, and I have to say to you for a moment, don't misunderstand Paul. He's not condemning you for having an authentic relationship with God. That's not what he's doing. But he's talking about the way that you see God in his sovereignty. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel of honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jew only, but also from the Gentile. And so I wrote in my journal this week as, as I work through all of this, what is God's ultimate pursuit in this world? What is it? And, and you know, immediately I would put me, right? That, that is what God is doing. God is pursuing me. That's God's ultimate pursuit in this world. But when I begin to look at these texts, what I realize is that that's not the case at all. And something powerful come to my mind when I realize that I was not the ultimate pursuit of God in this life. And something freeing came to my own heart that this is not about me, so the pressure is not upon me. I don't have to carry all of this because what I understand is that the ultimate pursuit of God in this life is his glory. That's what Paul teaches us, that the ultimate pursuit is his glory. More than anything else in this life, it's his glory. And man, our culture is not built that way. Our religious, secular culture in a lot of ways is not even built that way. So in this kind of teaching, I wrestled with how to bring it all together and end it. And so I want to give you an astronomy lesson. We're not going to have a Pilates class. Okay, we're not going to work out. All right, so understand that, right? Um, you've already made your resolution to do that. That only lasts you about three weeks, okay? And then you're going to be back to it again. So, so thank you, Mark, for the encouragement. I just read that article, so I don't know. Have you ever wondered why the sun, and that's what this represents, have you ever wondered why the sun is the center of our solar system? It's, it's a huge question. It really is. And here's the earth. And I thought about this a lot. 
if the earth was the center of our solar system, then the earth would not have the gravitational pull to keep our solar system together. And so our solar system would spin off into oblivion and we would all die. Thank you, Mark, for the words of encouragement, right? No, but listen, this is important. So the sun is 30,000 times the size of the earth. 30,000 times the size of the earth. The sun has its own ability to create heat. The earth does not. The sun has its own ability to create light. The earth does not. The sun has the ability to keep our solar system sustained and in order so that you and I can have life. If the sun was a person, then the greatest thing that the sun could do for anyone else would be to remain in the center to sustain life. You see, so it is with God and you and I. That God is the center, the sovereign center of all things. You see, the definition of sovereignty is not that just God controls everything. The definition of sovereignty is that God sustains everything. So the greatest act of a loving God is to remain sovereign over all things because that is the only way to sustain life. And I think that's so important for you and I to grasp this morning. That the greatest thing that God can do, the most loving and gracious and kind and merciful thing that God can ever do in our life is to remain sovereign over all things. Because without that, we no longer exist. Without that, you and I are hopeless. Without that, that there is no mercy, but yet life is left up to what we deserve. But because of his sovereignty, that he sustains us. So in those moments when you feel like things are out of control and in those moments when you feel like that where is God in all of this can I tell you even those moments when we can move God around in our lives by prioritizing things we can never ever touch his sovereignty because he's God so before we pray, I wrote some things in my journal this week as I prepared for the new year. 
I started out this writing about the things that I wanted to experience this year. And I said that you're a God of mercy. That's where I began. Because really, where else can we begin? And I put into there that you are about you, that God, you're about you and not me. And that's great for me because it means that it's not left up to me. And I said, because of that, everything that you give me this year and every thought that you have toward me this year and every feeling that you have about me this year is purely birthed out of your love and your grace and your mercy because I deserve nothing. That I'm not able to make everything a W for me this year. I'm not able to make everything a win for me this year. And I realize that, but that's okay. That's all right. Because what I can do is I can continually every morning get up and I can celebrate you and your sovereignty and make sure that you remain the center of my personal universe. So every year I choose a word for that year. And this year for 2021, I chose the word sovereignty. Because he's the center that holds everything together. And when the things in this world don't go the way I think they should go, I rest in that fact that he is the center and sustainer of all. So for a moment, would you bow your heads? Those of you who are here in the room, those of you that are joining us from church at home, would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Just to shut out the distractions and all the things that can cause you to your mind to wonder for this is a moment to I think for us to search our hearts as we traverse this new year together this is a moment for us to really say how do we see God and and do we somehow see God as well sort of stepping back from our lives at times and let us doing what we want to do in life or do we see God as truly sovereign? That means he's in every moment, in every situation, every circumstance of our lives. He even takes the bad decisions of our lives and can even use those for his glory also. Have we tried so hard to please him and to gain something that already has been given to us as a free gift, and that is his love and mercy and grace? Have we thought about bringing our worry and our concern? And, and I, I truly understand this, that yes, that you should pray and you should share the gospel and you should make the world a better place and you should fight for injustice. And absolutely, that's, that's our call upon our lives. But have you laid your worry and your uncertainty at the feet of his sovereignty? and say, God, I trust you. I trust you in life today. So, Lord, speak to us in this moment. God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your truths. 
God, you didn't give us all of the all of the, the pieces of this puzzle, but God, you've given us enough, one, to, to create hunger in our lives for more of you. And, and yes, God, we are hungry for more of you. But God, you've given us enough to give us hope that we don't live in hopelessness, but you've given us enough for us to understand, God, that you are sovereign, that you're sovereign over all things. So we lean into you today with our lives, with our sin and our brokenness. We lean into you because, God, none of us are too far and the distance from you is not too great that you cannot reach us. So we lay our lives at the feet of your sovereignty over all things. Thank you, Lord, that you're Lord over all. And may we live in that truth and hold on to the strength of that truth this year. In your name we pray.